Hello, you're listening to the Scrum Podcast for Wednesday, July 30th, 2014. I'm Peter Kadzis filling in for Adam Riley. Each week on the Scrum Podcast, we talk about politics and media from Boston to the Beltway. This week, we're talking Steve Grossman and Super PACs, Charlie Baker and immigration, and Marty Walsh's candid defense of former probation head John O'Brien. I'm joined by WGBH's political analyst, David Bernstein of Boston Magazine, and a scrum first-timer, Cynthia Needham, the political editor of the Boston Globe. Love that capital section, Cynthia. Can, can I just, just say that I'm very glad that Cynthia agreed to come on despite that my my incessant badgering on Twitter over the name of that section, which I love the section. I just badger them about the name, which you, I don't You mean like, the but, A in capital? Yeah, I, I don't really like the name of the section. I, I love the name. And I'm specifically here to defend the capital <laughs> with an A versus capital with an O. Um, and I will defend it. Capital with an O. Really strict, narrow definition. Look it up in the dictionary, capital with an A implies a lot broader of a uh, insinuation of the uh, word and the meaning. So uh, there you go. Well, I'm with Cynthia, but David, you want to you, you want to be cranky for a minute? I appreciate though. We need the loyal critics. It's, it's, at least you're being talked about, right? It's never exactly. bad to be talked Always about. Always want to be part of the conversation. <laughs> I, I just think that that capital with an A uh, at first look suggests a money section, it, like that this would be something about venture capital and and that sort of thing. Well, honestly, I think that was part of it. I mean, we certainly wanted the uh, suggestion that it has to do with the the capital of our state, but also that that in politics there's a lot lot broader of a concept of capital. Political capital is in some ways political power. And I think we were trying to say, hey, this isn't just going to be a section about Beacon Hill, about about the hill in Washington. It's going to be about the larger sense of how politics can influence our money and our lives and taxpayers. So that's where it came from. I wonder if there's a secret communist at the Globe. I think of Das Kapital. (laughs) Das Kapital. Is that how it's supposed to be pronounced? I I love the thought. (laughs) Anyway... We could have this argument all day long. (laughs) And uh, and our listeners are probably hoping we don't. (laughs) Boston Mayor Marty Walsh made headlines twice this week. First, when he named Ted Landsmark to the board of the BRA. And then again, when he spoke about the verdict in the trial of John O'Brien. Let's let the mayor speak for himself on this O'Brien matter. Was John O'Brien guilty of a crime? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, It's sad for for the legislature trying to get out from a couple dark clouds that they've had to, they've been under for a decade now, uh, trying to move beyond that. Um, Jack O'Brien uh, was a head of probation. Uh, his office, clearly the, the two people that were with him convicted. Uh, it was a sad day. I thought it was a sad day for Massachusetts. I thought it was a sad day for the legislature. I thought it was a sad day f- f- for the court judiciary. Those voices belong to first Jim Browdy of Boston Public Radio and secondly, obviously, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. David, let's start with you. Um, what did you make of the mayor's defense of O'Brien? I think it's a sad day for Boston when, when the mayor, the, the top guy on the org chart for thousands of public employees, uh, essentially defends uh, the practices that, uh, that John O'Brien uh, were shown to to. Uh, be doing over there at, at probation. It, it's uh, it's not just that that it, those actions were inexcusable. It, it essentially sends a message. 
as far as I'm concerned, it sends a message to anyone who might be thinking of, you know, applying for a job at inspectional services or the school department or something. Don't necessarily expect that this is a fair uh, a fair system uh, because I think it's okay to you know even if there's a system in place that someone undermines the system uh, to to help someone with political connections and, and I think that it's inexcusable for him to have said it. But what do you really think? <laughs> Let me just explain that the jury answered the question as to whether O'Brien was guilty or not. They said he was clearly guilty of essentially setting up a racket to award jobs to the undeserving. Now, this story was first broken in the Boston Globe in a two-part spotlight team uh, series. Cynthia, in a larger sense, what is the political fallout of this series been? Well, obviously, I mean, I think you've sort of seen the political fallout. Uh, You saw the trial that took place over many weeks. You saw the verdict last week. Um, Going back to what you said about Marty Walsh for a second, I think what is pretty interesting about this to me, about his comments yesterday, is that he... You've heard a lot of people defend the legislators. There was a lot of debate whether or not there should have been a trial at all. What you haven't heard is a lot of uh, a lot of people out there defending O'Brien. Uh, he was fairly – it was fairly clear that what he was doing, um, and a jury decided as much, was he had created this specific system that was designed to dupe people. And I think what was so surprising to me about what Marty said yesterday is he wasn't defending DeLeo. He wasn't defending his – fellow former colleagues in the legislature, he was defending uh, O'Brien himself, which just seemed sort of odd. Well, let let me shed some light on that. I grew up, uh, my backyard as a kid in Dorchester abutted the O'Brien family backyard. Now, I I wasn't close with Jack. Uh, My younger brothers and sisters were. The O'Briens were a nice family. He's a nice guy. And I think that if you're in the sort of neighborhood circuit of Boston, you feel bad for him. You, you, people feel bad for him because he's a good guy from a nice family. That doesn't mean that what he did was acceptable. And, and you know, it, and it's fine to, to think that. And I, I've felt that about many people who have been convicted of crimes. And, and uh, uh, it's entirely another thing for the mayor of Boston to go out and not just say – geez, I think this was a nice guy or I think that this is prosecutorial overreach or, you know, but to go out and, and just, you know, like Cynthia said, defend his actions and say that essentially he thought that they were acceptable behavior. Uh, again, coming from that position um, that he holds um, is, I think, just terrible. The other thing uh, about it is that I've been hearing this for four years since the Spotlight series came out. You get state legislators and those around the system, those who are used to the system, who have been part of the system, who have been taking this as a you know, direct insult and, and blurring the lines that the prosecutors tried very hard and the, and the judge and, the, and the, ultimately the jury drew the line. We're not – this trial is not about criminalizing patronage, the normal kind of patronage that, that Marty is talking about. And it's people like Marty and people like uh, Pat Haddad and, and – and Bob DeLeo, they're the ones who are conflating it, who are saying, oh, this is terrible that what they're doing is criminalizing this ordinary patronage. That's a whole separate conversation. They're the ones blurring the lines. Cynthia, let me run a theory past you. Um, My theory is that while Walsh 
certainly meant what he said about O'Brien. He was really providing cover, as David suggested, for his fellow legislators and the Speaker, uh, uh, Bob DeLeo. When DeLeo was under what I thought was um, unfair attack by the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was very interesting that Mayor Walsh, in the midst of this nasty flare-up, issued a statement defending DeLeo's uh, admirable handgun uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, gun control proposal. Do you think he's ultimately playing inside politics here? I think to some degree. But, you know, listening to that audio yesterday and again just a few minutes ago, what really struck me about Walsh's answer there is that he didn't really seem to have a prepared answer. It was like he hadn't thought through what he what he felt on this. And I got to be honest, it's shocking to me that he hadn't. Um, No legislator, no public official wanted to talk about this at all. We had a story last week. They were literally running away from reporters in the halls of the statehouse. But at the same time, you have to know that you will be asked about it. You go on a news program, of course you're going to be asked about it. And if you listen to that audio, it just goes on and on, and he's sort of bumbling. And I'm just surprised that somebody himself, his his press people didn't say, hey, we know you don't want to talk about it. you got to have a good answer. You can't sound like you're fumbling. I had the same reaction, uh, and and I couldn't agree more. How does the mayor of Boston come on to a live radio show uh, you know, a couple in the middle of this d- discussion, he has to know that that uh, question is coming. How does he not have a prepared response? How is he not prepared for that? Uh, maybe he was prepared with a brush off response, a, no- a, a non response, and he decided that he was going to do something different on, on on the fly. I don't know, but. Uh, it is surprising. I, I agree totally. Well, a variation of being unprepared was Ted Landsmark yesterday. Um, the mayor made a lot of headlines when he said that uh, Ted Landsmark was joining the board of the BRA, and he got kudos because Landsmark hadn't been seen as a supporter of his. So it was uh, Mayor Walsh being nonpartisan. Uh, thinking big, if you will, uh, something that his predecessor wasn't often accused of. Um, Ted Landsmark, everyone thought yesterday, was the president of Boston Architectural College, BAC. It turns out today that um, he had been forced out. David, in a nutshell, we don't have to dwell (laughs) on this, but what's the politics of something like this? You know, it it depends on how much of this stuff happens over time. I think that that it's kind of a roll your eyes, you know, especially since it appears that that the mayor didn't know as he was making the decision, at least according to what I've read. Um, and that's a little surprising. And it makes you wonder also, it makes you wonder, again, sort of this is a one time, so is this just a, you sort of roll your eyes and file it away to see if more things happen. But you wonder if, it, you know, look, the mayor's been taking some heat from myself and others, uh, for not having a diverse enough cabinet and diverse enough hires uh, at the high levels. Uh, you know, was he overeager to get Ted Landsmark, who's not only a minority, but a very, you know, symbolic minority? Symb- um, symbolic why? Well, well, for those who uh, who cast their minds back. You know, he was in that famous photograph. Uh, you would know this story much better than I do, but back during the busing. Back during those very tense and 
awful days of forced busing. Uh, Ted Landsmark, as a young man, was attacked with an American flag. A very famous photograph won a, a by Stanley right Foreman. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, it was a great symbolic thing to, to name someone like Landsmark. So maybe they were in a bit of a rush to get someone like that out there and get some headlines out of it. Cynthia? At the same time, I think that, you know, obviously there's been a a lot of scrutiny on the BRA and everything that's happening with the BRA. And I just was surprised again that I thought the mayor looked a little flat-footed, that he hadn't done his research um, and he hadn't – he didn't know this. Um, You know, these things happen, of course, but I I think given the spotlight on the BRA BRA and everything they do, I think he should have known. Yeah. I'll tell you my potting observation on this uh, position, this issue is that Landsmark would have joined the board as a guy with a lot of independence. Um, I I think now there'll be, you know, a subtle pull uh, for him to be a little closer to the mayor. I mean, I'm predicting I don't know what will really happen, Mm -hmm. but it's not as pristine a transition as it could have been. Let's try another not pristine transition and jump over to the governor's race. Steve Grossman (laughs) unleashed his television ad. Didn't strike me as a game changer, but uh, Cynthia, what did you make of it? We're talking about his ad and not the Super PAC ad? Let's talk about his ad first and then move on to the Super PACs. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think his ad, I, I think the one thing that we all kind of agreed on, it was it was, it was a little bit boring. Um, interestingly, I've seen the ad a number of times. I mean, that was the idea. They've spent a lot of money on it. But it's essentially just a biographical spot that says, hey, this is who I am and this is why he sort of subtly suggests he's going to be better at the job than Martha Coakley. Um It strikes me that, you know, Steve Grossman has a lot of money. He needed to start spending it. That's what we're seeing now. Um, I'm personally sort of more interested in this uh, Super PAC ad and what that does to the game. Let's get to that. Tell us why. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth. Was there any uh, Super PACs, of course, are not allowed to have any sort of communication or not allowed to work together with a campaign. Campaign finance rules set that out. And Steve Grossman has been very clear that he did not. That did not happen. Martha Coakley has suggested otherwise. But to me, what's so interesting about this is is the mudslinging that started as a result of this super PAC ad coming out. Um, you know, we've been told over and over again the gloves are going to come off in this Coakley-Grossman race. But frankly, we hadn't seen it until now. And I think some of us were starting to wonder, gee, is this ever going to happen? But Steve Grossman is running more than 30 points behind in the polls. We've got five and a half weeks, I think, until the primary. And so everybody kind of knew he's going to have to start throwing punches. And the question was, when was it going to happen? And I think what we've seen this week with his own ad, but more with the Super PAC ad is the punches have started to be thrown. And I don't think it's going to stop until September 9th. Well, mud is the lubricant of Massachusetts politics. David, um, how dirty is this going to get? Well, I I think that I think that's the big question. And, and I, uh, I'll tell you something. I think that I was expecting much muddier than we got so far. And, uh, you know, I've been hearing increasingly over the last several weeks leading up to the release of these ads, more and more concern from Democratic insiders, including those who are not aligned with either camp, uh, increasingly concerned whether uh, Grossman and this super PAC we're going to really, you know, spend millions of dollars just ripping apart uh, uh, Martha Coakley and really 
hitting her hard and and tearing her down in the lead up to a primary which they thought she was going to win anyway and then you know she would be weakened going into the general election fight with Charlie Baker. I think they were very relieved with what they've seen so far in these ads. Um, like Cynthia says, I, I think that his that Grossman's own ad was tame. Um, it was fine as a biographical introduction, which you know tells you something already that six weeks or less before the the primary, he still needs to introduce himself. The guy's state treasurer, he's still trying to introduce himself. Um, but very tame in terms of its attack on uh, on Coakley, who doesn't even mention by name in the ad. And then this super PAC ad, you know, it, it, it it's a fine enough little ad, but it picks this very small little difference on, on the gun rights. And it's very hard to, to make, you know, the people who like uh, Martha Coakley and thinks she's done a good job as attorney general, which is the clear majority of, of Democratic primary voters, they're not going to think that she's weak on guns. So uh, I think that they're happy so far. And the mudslinging has come in these weird, like, offline fights over super PACs and, and coordination and that sort of thing. Charlie Baker, of course, is probably hoping for a lot of mudslinging. Um Baker surprised some people, uh, not, not others, um, recently by coming out in favor of uh, uh, the unaccompanied immigrant children who are here in Massachusetts. Didn't surprise me at all. Even a staunch conservative like Jeff Jacoby in his uh, very strong column in The Globe today called for opening our hearts to these kids. Any thoughts on how this will play with the Republican base, Cynthia? Well, I mean, I think that Charlie Baker has had to make a, make a calculated decision that he he's not going to play to the Republican base. I mean, he can't. The Republican base is just too small. To win this race, Charlie Baker has to play to the independents. And in some cases, the you know, the Democrats that are starting to wonder if, the, you know, after this primary, if they don't have a candidate that they like. And so I think that... There's not really. I, I just don't think that the Republican base is really an issue at this point. I think it's a question of how does something like this play to those independents that he needs so much. And yeah, go ahead. No, David, I was going to say, let's build off what Cynthia is saying. Um, how's Charlie Baker doing in general and how does this issue play into it? Well, Cynthia is exactly right that Baker is trying to play as far to the left as he possibly can, get rid of any differences uh, in policy between himself and the eventual Democratic nominee. I, I do think this – and she's absolutely right that that he needs to take the, the base for granted and assume that they're going to be with him and ultimately they probably will. But this has has hurt him with the base more than, than most things because the other stuff, you know, when, when he's not with them on issues of abortion, uh, you know, the, the – buffer zone thing and, and some of the other uh, issues that that they care about, they never expected him to be with them on those issues. But the immigration stuff, he was very, very much with them four years ago. He spent the last two months of the election pounding Deval Patrick on these kinds of issues uh, related to immigration. So when he came out against them on this, it, it really has hurt him among them. And We'll see what that means in the long run. Does that mean that they that some of them go with uh, an independent, Jeff McCormick, who is trying to, you know, he's come out uh, on the other side of this issue, is trying to make hay out of it. Um, will they just not 
volunteer as much for him, but he's against the whole party. You know, you see Richard Tisset and other Republicans, you know, campaigning hard on this issue. Thank you, David. Thank you, Cynthia. Thanks David, for having me. Always glad to be here. Cynthia Needham is the political editor at the Boston Globe, and David Bernstein is WGBH's political analyst, as well as a contributing political editor at Boston Magazine. You can find more from the Scrum on our blog, blogs.wgbh.org scrum. Also, remember, you can find us in iTunes, so please, please subscribe. I'm Peter Katzis, our engineer is Alan Mattis, and our producer is Abby Ruzica. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 